so we've been looking at a series. We first did Engage, Connect, Serve, and then we started our five core values. We looked at we were saved by grace in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So salvation is given freely. The response to that was in Ephesians 2.10. For you are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so we looked last time, last week we looked at these works come to us. And as we by faith do those works, we are honoring Christ. Well, we're still looking at grace today, and, and I've entitled this Living Grace. So we have the grace that is given to us, and we live it, but we live it out as we live our Christian lives. But today I want to look at the, the living grace, and I'll define what that means here in just a few minutes. So Titus, it really goes 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy. That's the actual order. I know in your Bible it says 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. This is known as the pastoral epistles. It was written to Timothy and Titus, uh, probably around 64, 63, 64 AD. Paul had just been released from prison in Rome, his first imprisonment. And basically he told Titus, and uh, show you where he, where he put Titus. So Titus is in the island of Crete. You see Rome's here, Macedonia, Corinth, Ephesus. So Crete is right here. If you measure it tip to tip, it's probably 120 miles and maybe 20 miles this way. So uh, we know from the book of Titus that uh, Cretans were not that good. They were uh, gluttons. They were liars. They had all kinds of problems. And now the gospel has come to Crete. And so Paul is instructing Titus to straighten out what is lacking in the church and also to confront false teaching. So as we look at the context of where we're looking at today, just before it, he says in 2.1, but as for you, teach in accord with what is sound doctrine. And then he gets into the church. Older men are to be sober, self-controlled, dignified, sound in faith. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good so that they can train young women to love their husbands. And then he talks about slaves. So the issue here within the church is this issue of salvation. First thing we're going to look at this morning is Jesus brings salvation. In 2.11, we look at the meaning of salvation. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God is a term that's used over 170 times in the New Testament. And it really refers to God's unmerited, undeserved favor. That is, none of us, by our works, by our deeds deserve God's grace it is given to us and it was given to us by the person of Jesus Christ when he went to the cross paid for our sins was raised again from the dead now reigns at the right hand of the father so all of us this morning that are believers in Christ we have been given this unmerited undeserved favor and we stand under that umbrella our entire Christian life and that's the good news of the gospel 
William Mounts in his commentary very simply uh, wrote this. Grace is a one-word summary of God's saving act in Christ, given freely to sinners who believe. Do you all realize how important grace is? I mean, the magnitude of God's grace. Think about the Old Testament for a minute. The Old Testament people were not really under the grace of God. They were under the covenant of God, a covenant which they broke time and time and time again. We are now benefactors of God's grace, which has been lavished on us. Please remember that as you live your Christian life, that you are under the grace of God, the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. This also plays itself out and has to play itself out in the body of Christ. Since we have been given grace, given the fact that he just talked about all these different relationships in the church, since we have been given grace, we also need to make room to give grace to others. That is, and there's a lot of uh, New Testament uh, teachings about uh, not having our own way all the time, not wanting our own way, not our way or the highway. And we treat each other differently. That's part of the grace, the grace uh, banner of the church, is that when we work in community, and we'll get into that here in a couple of weeks, when we get into community, part of it has to be steeped and founded upon grace. That is, we give grace to others the way that God has given us grace. This grace, Paul said, had appeared in the Old Testament that... Uh, appeared refers to seeing the face of God or the face of God. Here, it means that Jesus Christ physically appeared in the flesh. When we go in and we look at, uh, uh, for, for example, uh, John chapter 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word is God and he goes, we have, we have touched, we have handled, we have seen. He's talking about the physical appearance of Christ. So we can, re, re, uh, we can rely on the fact that Jesus really did come down here in human form. We see a lot in John's Gospel. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I know many of us, we get out on the highways and byways of life uh, and Christians are not seen favorably. We become, we, in their words, we are too judgmental, we are too uh, hardline, we are too, and some of that may be true, but as we live in community outside this church, we need to show the grace of God and not be so dogmatic uh, as we're sharing, trying to show them the light of the gospel. This word dwelt among us means tabernacled. That's the word for tabernacled, means uh, of, a, of a tent. Paul talks about when I fold this tent up, I go to be with him. He tabernacled, he lived here. He was fully God and he was fully man. That's the grace that appeared. In Christ Jesus, there is grace, there is love, and there is forgiveness for those that want to follow him and to seek him. Now the big question is, or at least I think the big question is, what is the scope of that grace? How far does grace extend? Well, the scope of it is found in 11b. 
bringing salvation for all people. So this Jesus Christ appeared, and he is the epitome of grace, and that grace now will extend to everybody. We're not talking about, and, and there's some that hold this a universal salvation, that when Jesus came, he died on the cross, and everybody's sin was forgiven, even if they don't trust in him. That's called universal salvation. That is nowhere taught in the Bible. Because Jesus tells us that we need to ask for forgiveness and repent of our sin, turn to him, and accept him as Lord and Savior. So this grace, though, is open to all. And this word salvation is soterious. Soterious in the Greek language, which means, and listen to this, means deliverance. Means deliverance. As we look at our culture today, it's, it's amazing what is happening in our culture. Uh, things that, that when I was a kid growing up was never even heard of is now happening in our culture. There is a culture, our culture today is in need of deliverance. But if we come along and we just bam, 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 and forget the grace of God, they'll miss it. So we have to be extremely careful on how we interact with unbelievers. I'm not saying you go out there and participate with them and, and to not share the truth with them, but there's a way to do that in such a way that it might draw them to the light of the gospel where they can be delivered. Colossians, a great book, by, by the way, Colossians says, He has delivered you from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. The world is dark. I watch one hour of news at lunch every day just to keep up, keep abreast with what's going on in our culture. Right now, and I don't like getting political, and I don't like talking about politics because it's on both sides of the aisle. Um, I don't know if you guys and gals feel this, but there is a darkness that is pervading our culture. I mean, it's just, we're venturing into places that I don't think we've ever been. And we, we, we like to say, well, the... The Democrats are the issue, and I disagree with them on a lot of points, but there are, there are Republicans too. Uh, the issue here is the way that we change our culture is not through a political upheaval. The way that we change our culture is through Jesus Christ. He transforms hearts. He takes them out of darkness and then transfers them into the kingdom of light, and then real change begins to happen in our culture. But we can't sit still. We can't sit still. We are charged with sharing the gospel message. And it's so important. And that's why he talks this right in the community, right after the community things that he talked about up to this verse. He's saying, look, you need to model this in the church so that when you go out, you can say, Jesus has come, he has appeared, he is real, and he offers salvation. And the way that takes place is by us. Jesus transformed the world with 12. 
We have 40-something here this, this morning. How many points of light can we represent in our culture to transform that culture? This is a good picture, I think, of deliverance. The world is in a sea of sin. And the word here, uh, this salvation word, speaks of reaching down and pulling someone out. And that's where our world is today. When, when you go to work tomorrow morning, you're going to have people that are in the dominion of darkness, and you have a great opportunity. You have a great opportunity to share the gospel. Those of you that may go to your social groups, you have a great opportunity in those social groups to be a light to the world so that they might be drawn to it like a moth is drawn to a flame so that they can encounter Jesus Christ. And this, he qualifies what he means by bringing salvation. It is for all people. It is for all people. We should never get to a place in our Christian walk where we look at people and say, that person cannot be saved. You got a family member that's so far gone, you think there's no way he can save. Look who's writing this. The Apostle Paul is writing this. You all know about Paul. Paul was killing Christians. And yet, on the road to Damascus, God showed up, transformed Paul's heart, and then he went on fire for the Lord. I look at it this way. If you've got somebody that is so obstinately against the gospel, watch what happens when they get saved. So this, is, this would be what I would tell you. That the gospel is for everyone. I, I remember, uh, I don't know, every once in a while I go back to Bible college, I migrate back there, and that was many, many years ago. I remember Dr. Collins, who was our professor at the time, um, and I might have shared this before, you know, you get 64, you start repeating yourself at some points. He was talking to us, and it was Ministry 101, how to conduct yourself as a pastor, basically. Um, I didn't particularly like his class because you had to memorize seven times you should call your pastor and you had to spit those back on a test. And anyway, yeah, you had to, you had to regurgitate everything that he, he said, you're going to need to know this. And there's like five pages of 14 things here. And uh, Dr. Collins told us one day, and he shared this, and it really, it really hit me. He said he was pastoring at the time, and he went to this house, and the house was filthy. He walked through the door. It was just, he said it was a mess. He said, I couldn't wait to get out of there. He said he sat down on the couch and was wondering what was going to crawl on him. And he was telling us that very confessionally. And he said it, there were chip bags, there were cockroaches, this was in Florida. And we're getting ready to eat, so try to dis discredit <laughs> this stuff. But he said he stayed less time than he thought he did because the house was filthy. He got in his car, 
after he said, thank you, I hope you come to church, he got in his car and he started thinking about it. And he said, God impressed upon his heart. He said, that's how dirty you were before I cleaned you up. There is nobody too far gone that they cannot be saved. There is nobody so far gone that God can't possibly reach them. Look, it should not shock us when sinners act like sinners. And yet, sometimes when we're out there, we think, how can they possibly act that way? Well, they can act that way because they need deliverance. They need salvation. So when you go out there, don't be, oh, I can't believe they did that. Well, of course they did, because they're not saved. And you meet some good, unsaved people. But for the most part, they don't, they don't do what we do. It's not, and you all guys, gals know, we're not perfect either. Just let me know and I'll tell you your faults right after the, right after the sermon. My wife points mine out all the time, so. <laughs> Bringing soterious deliverance to all people. That's the mission of the church, to get out there and share the gospel with people no matter where they are in their station or walk in life. The gospel cuts all barriers, all racial barriers, all social barriers, all economical barriers. All those barriers are broken because Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for everybody's sin. Nobody, and I'm gonna stress this again, <laughs> Bringing salvation to all people. God wants to deliver every person. God is not willing that any should perish, Peter says, but that all come to repentance. And that's our mission. That is our mission, to share the gospel and to stand. I'm not telling you to be wishy-washy when you're out there. I know some of you are in difficult situations. I'm not telling you to compromise your beliefs or your convictions. What I'm telling you to do is to kind of tone it down a little bit. And love people. And share the gospel with them. I think about every person in my life that had some type of significant impact. I remember when I was nine years old, my mom took me to this church. And apparently, I was having a problem with taking things. So my mom took me to this church to see this pastor, and I still remember him. Anyway, even at nine years old, I could figure out what was going on. He said, well, I'm going to lay this $5 bill here on the table. Like, I'm really going to take the $5 bill from the pastor. He says, I'll be back in a minute. And I came back, and I think the pastor was shocked that it wasn't gone. But you know what? I remember that event. And in a sense, that was a gospel moment. 
my grandmothers shared the gospel with me. This crazy young couple in Bad Kreuznach, Germany, in the laundromat, shared the gospel with me. At that time, I was listening to Foreigner, Fleetwood Mac, and all those groups, and they, they came in, and they go, hey, have you ever heard Christian music? And I was like, what? What's that? That was a gospel moment. Thank goodness they took the time to do that. Touches. That's what we need. Touches. So that they can see, wait a minute. Jesus isn't hateful. Our culture right now is a hateful, angry culture. I was doing the speed limit the other day and some guy waved me for doing the speed limit. If Christians are out there doing the same thing the culture is doing, how in the world can they ever hear the gospel? So we need to tone it down a little bit. We need to love people. We need to share the gospel. Bringing salvation to all people. This is what happens when somebody gets saved. Well, I'm going to share this one. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Done. Rescued. Finished. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, I, I am a sinner. I need to ask for forgiveness of my sin. And I invite you into my heart. You, he then comes in and it's gone. Everything that you've ever done in your life is gone, put under the blood of Christ. Now, what happens at that moment? This is not a book reform or head reform or uh, somehow I'm going to do this self-help book and I'm going to get better in my life. That's, that's not, that's not going to work. What needs to happen is right here. There needs to be a transformation that takes place here. And then this, this is what happens. He changes our desires. He changes our desires. The wrong way, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, Paul writes in 12a. Training is paiduo, and listen, listen to this. So the, the grace appears, which is Jesus Christ. He begins to train us in the person of the Holy Spirit who comes into our heart, begins to train us, paiduo, to provide instructions with intent of forming proper behaviors and attitudes. So it's a training. Proper behavior and attitudes. Now, you know, I got to start getting back out. I like playing golf, so. Uh, but you know how I can tell this is a good golfer? Um, well, one is, Let's just look at it. His takeaway, the club is out to the side. Then he cocks his wrist. I can only get to right here because I'm getting older. I can't do what he does. But there's one thing that lets me know this guy hits consistent good shots. And most people, of course, I played golf since I was 12. Um, notice this knee. This knee does not move. You come down here, when that knee doesn't move, people think you coil, you get way back there. That, that's not how you build power. You build power by having that base. You see that? His knee did not move. 
And as, you, as that knee doesn't move, you start to store power. That's how you hit the ball a far distance. And Paul says that when Jesus Christ comes in, when that grace appears and he comes in, he begins to train you because you have an anchor. The anchor is Jesus Christ. And, and just like a golfer, most golfers, pro golfers, will hit 500 balls in a, in a round. 500 golf balls in one round, man, it'd tear your hands up. But they do it every day, so wild. Paul tells Timothy, physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefit in this life and the life to come. So how do we train? Well, first of all, you come to church. Then you stay for Bible study or what some call Sunday school. You start learning the Bible. You start getting around other Christians. You start learning from other Christians. You get in the Bible on your non-Sundays. You get in the Bible. You, uh, you listen to sermons. You do uh, all kinds of biblical things. That's how you get trained. You don't need a doctorate degree. You don't need a master's degree. You don't need a bachelor's degree. I'm foolish enough to believe that the Holy Spirit will teach you what is right and wrong. I bet you if I ask anybody in this church, you could tell me one thing you're supposed to be doing. And I bet you with 40 so here, we could have 40 or so different things in a matter of a minute that we know is the right thing to do. He says that... uh, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Renounce means to deny any relationship with it. And uh, this this little picture is pretty good. It just simply means turning from sin. We're supposed to turn our back on that. It doesn't mean mean that we won't occasionally uh, fall into sin and make mistakes and stumble. That's not the issue. The issue is when it becomes the norm instead of the... uh, exception so when we renounce something we say I want nothing more to do with it that's what Jesus Christ teaches us do you know who Jesus got into trouble with he didn't get in trouble with sinners Jesus got in trouble with the religious elite of the day the religious people sinners welcomed him for the most part And that's our mission out there is to show Jesus Christ the love of Christ so that they can embrace the cross of Christ. Ungodliness and worldly passions. To live a godless life is what the word ungodly means. Worldly passion is epithumia. Epithumia, which means earthly desires. And what this means is I guess the best way to explain it, according to the Greek, is this earthly desire for fame, for wealth, for anything that is, takes our minds or our thoughts off Jesus Christ. And you know, people spend a lot of time trying to keep up with the Joneses. They, they spend a lot of time trying to be prestigious or uh, searching for a, a higher position. I, I had a friend of mine, he was, uh, we were stationed together in, in Germany. And uh, 
he was he went into the ministry he left the army a little shortly after I did and his whole goal was trying to hobnob with higher ups he was trying to he was trying to do the stair step to get this great position last thing I knew he was banned to some island somewhere I can't remember the name of it. but That shouldn't be in the children of God. It doesn't mean we can't try for promotions, but it's how we go about getting those promotions is what's most important. Do we step on people? Do we uh, use them to climb to higher levels? That's, 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 that's not right. You should be able to get the job, and I realize there's some unfair stuff going on, but you should try to get the job based on your worth, work ethic and how you present yourself to your employer and your empl and other uh, uh, people that you work with, and that that can be a problem. And that Audrey put something on my Facebook the other day about these preachers, uh, Jesse Duplantis. There's a, several others, Kenneth Copeland. I don't know, but I don't think. Jesus would have flown on a $25 million aircraft. The Son of God said, I have no place to lay my head. And yet these false preachers, which Titus will get into, these false preachers are out there saying, you know, the way to get financial prosperity is give me money. No. No, I think that's wrong on numerous levels, and I would even call into question their salvation. That's not us. That is, that is not us. We're, we're to renounce this stuff. It doesn't mean you can't have nice things, but don't let your nice things have you. There's a big difference. And uh, this salvation is brought to all. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And again, it doesn't mean that we're going to do this perfectly. None of us will do it perfectly. The right way that Paul mentions now, and so you renounce this stuff, ungodliness and worldliness and all that, you renounce it. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We've seen this word live several times in a few weeks. Uh, zoe, which is the word live, which means to be alive. Um, and kind of give you a little triangle here. First of all, self-control. And that word literally means authority over impulses or sober-mindedness. Sober you go back and you look at older men are to be sober-minded dignified self-control a person that is not doing this is one that just blurts out and they just say it without thinking without wor without worrying about who they're going to offend who they're going to hurt they just blurt it out one woman in a church years ago told me I'll say exactly what I think and I go, okay. And she did tell me exactly what she thought. <laughs> uh, but that person didn't have a lot of 
pull in the church. Why? Because they were rude, obnoxious. They didn't hold it back. They didn't filter it. Uh, and Paul says you need to be self-controlled. Uh, be sober-minded. Think about what you're doing before you do it. My stepfather told me one time uh, when I was on my, I don't know, I was probably 15 and half-baked. And I said something to him and he looked at me and he said this. It's better to let people think you're stupid than open your mouth and prove it. And <laughs> that always stuck with me. And I think about this self-controlled. Authority over impulses. Squelch it. Don't do it. Yeah, that, that, it's amazing because I was 15 and I still remember that. Uh, my stepfather had a lot of uh, wisdom sayings like that. Um, think before you speak. I think that's a, that's a good way. Think before you speak. Upright. Respectable and good. The goal of the Christian community as we live outside these doors should be that we have a good reputation. And sometimes our reputations can be stained by our own doing or by false accusations. But as the goal of the Christian life, it's to live and remember who we represent. And while the person may be lost and going to hell, which there's a literal hell, we need to remember that we rise above that. We, we're, we're, we're better than that. And that we don't act a certain way and that we guard those impulses and be careful how we live because people are watching. When I was in the army, they called me Father Frazier. I remember one time we were in Holmfels and uh, Sergeant Aurora, who was my boss, I was on my bunk, I was off because we were working 12 on, 12 off. I was on my bunk and I was listening to the, the Braves on Armed Forces Radio. And uh, Sergeant Aurora walked up and he kind of kicked my bunk and I went like that. He said, what you listening to? I said, I'm listening to the Braves game on Armed Forces Network. He said, I didn't think Christians did that. I said, okay, well, let me, let me explain to you. <laughs> and I had a conversation with him. I don't know if the Braves won. That was back when they were not that good. So they, they probably lost, which I was self-controlled. I didn't. Godly means pleasing God. That's the whole goal of the Christian life is to please God. Ultimately, and I've been saying this, the biggest audience that you have is him. And how we live our lives reflects him to the world. And, and again, please don't misunderstand this. You're going to sin. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to stumble. But let that be the exception, not the norm. And it gets difficult at, at, at times. And then he adds this. It's kind of like an extra point in football. Live godly lives in this present age today. 
And I'll be honest, it's tougher to be a Christian today. It's very tough. I know many of you are facing new mandates at work. So you have to be careful. You really have to be careful. And ultimately, if it comes down to it, you have to state what you believe and why you believe it. But there's still a way to do that. And I think what Paul's talking here is about moderation, about control, about our importance in the world in which we live. My friend Newt Larson and mentor, uh, he wrote this in his commentary. Many are the voices today which argue against such narrow terms of right and wrong. Postmodern people claim a liberation from religious inhibitions. The popular response to life today is not Paul's yes or no, but a faddish whatever. And that's true. Speaking as a pastor, it seems like everybody's tolerant except if you're a Christian. And according to that, we're, we're bigots, we're racist, we're all these different things. That's shooting it straight. That's the culture in which you find yourself. Oh, you're, you're a Christian. You're a racist. You're a Christian. They all they got a bunch of labels out there. There's a bunch of labels. And that's where we live. And just like in Paul's day, today, he still calls us to live upright and godly lives in this present age. And it is a challenge, trust me. And I know I've talked to many of you. I know, I know where you are in your stations in life. And I know that you encounter this stuff every day. And we have to kind of rise above it. And it's easy. It's easy to get irritated. It happens to me. And when that happens, my wife has to dial me back about four notches. But it's tough. And I'm going to tell you as your pastor, I know it's tough. But remember this sermon today. Just rise. Okay. I'm not going to let them get to me. Because I want to get to them. And the way that I get to them is to love them. And to show them that I care about them. Even though we know, everybody in here knows, if you don't have Christ, you're lost. We know that. Sometimes it's better just to get beat up. Let them beat you up. Verbally, not physically, but verbally. Sometimes it's better to take the hits so that they'll go, wow, that person didn't even come back on me. And the best, best advice is to walk away and count to 10 and come back. So Newt Larson's absolutely right. The world in which we live is whatever, except when you're a believer, then it's you guys are all these different names. Now that's the wrong way and the right way, but what do we do until then? What do we do until then? Well, our motivation for living this way is contained in verse 13. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
waiting. Prosekomai in the Greek, which means an expectant expectation. It's like a double positive. That means that we live our lives, we, we live our lives with the expectation that someday Christ is going to come back, that, that Christ will come back. And so as we live our lives, we, we've got one eye in the clouds and one eye on the ground, so to speak, where we are expecting Christ to come back, and that should help regulate our activities and our actions. And so we live with that expectation. And boy, I tell you what, Jesus cannot come back fast enough for me because of the way the world's going. But if we have that, wait a minute, Jesus is coming back, and I need to be preparing for that day so that I can see him face to face. The appearing of the glory, and he uses the word blessed here, which means happy or to be enjoying a favorable circumstance. Listen. Blessed are you when men say all manner of evil about you, for great is your reward in heaven. Jesus said that. Paraphrasing. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when men revile you and speak all manner of evil against you, for great is your reward in heaven. So sometimes take one for the team. Because ultimately it proves something. It proves your salvation. And it proves just as... And by the way, we like this neat Christianity. Where, and I got blown out of the water when I first got saved. I said, whoa, the reactions here are bad. When that army chaplain led me to saving faith, I went back, told my friends, they looked at me like I was living on Mars. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing to be a believer. But here's something we can never lose sight of. We are blessed. So I'll say this. Go out and be happy. Because you know whom you have believed. Be joyful. Some guy cuts you off, just smile. Somebody says something bad about you, just smile. Now, attacking character is a different issue, but we should be the happiest people in the world because we know where we're going. And we're only here for a short time. Yesterday, I was 24. Today I'm 64. It's a short period of time. One pastor said, what I want my congregation to do is show teeth. Smile. A pretty good sermon analogy, I guess. Smile. There was a lady in my first full-time church, which was bigger. Della. Della. Della went through horrible things. Every Sunday she would show up, hi, Brother Mike. That's the way they talked back then. Hi, Brother Mike. Smiling, 
even though all of this bad stuff is happening in her life, she's just smiling. And it made me feel really bad. Because I was like, how can you possibly be this happy? Nobody can be this way. Brother Mike, would you like to come over and have some fried chicken? Oh yeah, Della made some fried chicken now, let me tell you. To me, that is one of the best images that I have in my life of somebody that's supposed to be smiling and joyful. We're blessed. We are blessed. As we wait for the expectant hope, we are blessed because we know who waits at the end of the line. And he said, our hope is not, uh, gee, I hope this happens or gee, I hope that happens. This hope that Paul uses is a confident expectation. It is not some pie-in-the-sky idea. I'm telling you this. Jesus is coming back. I don't know when, but I do know this, that my Redeemer lives and He's coming back. And how we live our lives here in this minute, small space of time reflects on what we believe about Jesus. And if we're out there uh, making enemies by the way we act, and we're out there doing all kinds of things that are wrong, how in the world will, e will anybody ever see the gospel if we are the only Christians that they encounter? And so we should be excited. One final thing, and then we've got fried chicken. Hey, did I hear an amen? Did I hear it? Philip Towner, in his commentary, The Present Age and the Life in It, thus takes its meaning from two reference points. The past reference point is certain, historical. It is the substance of the gospel message. That is, Jesus came to this world. That was real. It happened. The future reference point is based on the past event, the fact that Jesus came. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to be myself uh, with, with me. John 14, 1 and 2. Uh, but its time is uncertain, requiring hope and an expectant forward look. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I do know this, he is coming back. And how we live in this little area of time in our lives has massive, significant impacts on the world.